All right, Stanton, haven't you noticed um, it's all about the dopamine? That was what uh, Nora Volko said back in the New York Times in 2007. Yeah, and Nora Volko doesn't really speak that way so much anymore, but never fear. There's always, I, I mean, of course she does. I saw your face. Back and forth. Does, but, but she speaks sensibly as well, and it's, she's having sort of a, I don't know what you call it, some sort of a crisis of meaning in her mind. But there's a new person who's very bullish about the, the idea of dopamine. And she's not so new. Her name's Anna Lemke. She's written books about um, the so-called opioid crisis. She's a psychiatrist. She's chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. So, you know, people know her. And she's written, I think, best-selling books. One's called, uh, one is called Dopamine Nation. The other book is called Drug Dealer MD. It's all about why doctors, you know, we do have an opioid crisis and doctors caused it. She was on recently the Joe Rogan experience. And Joe Rogan, and you mentioned this before in our podcast, you don't get, there's not a bigger podcast audience. As far as comedians go, they used to want to be on late night. And if they made it on late night, I mean, they really made it. And you're going to get popular. Joe Rogan was the new late night. If you make it on Joe Rogan's show, you're going to sell, you're going to be a bestseller. Um, people are going to know you. He gets tens of millions of downloads per episode, hundreds of millions per month. I think he's nears 2 billion downloads per year for people on his shows. So, you know, people know him. <clears throat> and this woman, Dr. Anna Lemke, made an appearance on her show. Um... Everything that she said, and then Rogan's positive and sort of reinforcing reaction to her claims, suggests something about our friend Carl Hart's uh, ability to permeate our culture, let's say our cultural willful ignorance about drugs and addiction. But I'm going to get to that. That's something I'm going to get to in just a second. Did they mention First, Carl Hart? I, I didn't see that they did, although I, I'll admit something. I didn't make it through. She, he had her on for three hours. Rogan has a thing. If he has a guest on, unless it's someone who's just passing through town and has a plane to catch, usually if he has a guest on for an hour, hour and a half, he's not interested. And so we'll sign off. All right, we got to go. If he has a guest on for over two hours or three hours, he's interested in that person. He wants to keep talking. It's worth his audience's time. So they were over three hours, and I think I made it maybe almost two hours the way through, but enough to catch, you know, the gist. But the idea. Yeah, and so basically she's saying what everyone one of those things that you can't go wrong saying and she happens to be one of the people that um the intellectual milieu sort of relies on to be the mouthpiece for the idea that addiction is a chronic relapsing brain disease that it's dopaminergic at its core and everything else sort of follows from that so what i'm going to do is play a clip from actually i'll play two clips but i'm going to play one now and then we can respond to a few things she said together. Mind you, I could have played a million clips from what she said. At one point, she talked about there being addiction gremlins. She's speaking figuratively, but gremlins in your brain that really want you to do some sort of behavior or drug again, and you just can't get to it. But this, I think, is a good, a better summation of what she's trying to say here. Now, the thing about addiction and the way that it changes our brains is that that thing that initially is pleasurable and has us engaging in approach behaviors, 
if we continue to consume that substance or engage in that behavior, it ultimately actually puts us in a dopamine deficit state such that we want to continue to do that behavior, not to feel good, but just to stop feeling bad. Mm. And that's kind of one of the fundamental things about the disease of addiction. It's innate vulnerability to start added to the changes that occur in the brain as a result of ongoing consumption of our drug. And those brain changes are what drive continued compulsive use. She says these th really obvious yet meaningless kinds of things like, well, if, you are, if you're in an area that um, there's a greater supply of what she calls addictive substances, so, you know, she fails to address what that even means, but she says, then, of course, you have a higher risk of becoming addicted. But also, if you have a tendency to um, seek a thrill, or if you're a person whose natural disposition is to want to continue pleasure and sort of outframe everything else, then you're much more likely of being addicted. And you can't can't quite know who you are in that case until you've done the drug. So it's best Does not you to say though. Those are non those are non biological or biological factors. She's saying those are biological. She's talking. She's saying we're tackling the the nature side now, and so the, and lastly, she talks about inheritance and genetics. She also says, well, on the nurture side of things, if you've experienced great degrees of trauma in your past, then you're then you're likely to become more addicted. Then you're more likely to become addicted. And she does grant that addiction is to more than just drugs, but when she, she switches back and forth. So when she's talking about addiction in this case, she's talking about to drugs. And when she's talking about trauma and everything, she's talking about that's a, a vulnerability for becoming addicted to drugs. Funny enough, I know you and I think about trauma and trauma theory as actually a very biological one, a very much a uh, nature claim. So I think I've done it, I mean, it was not the way she said it, but I think I've done it justice. So love to get your response. Now, I get, would you not agree that when Carl Hart's talking about addiction, he tends to talk about opioids? Um, I, I agree with that. Let's get to that later though. Let's just, for now, let's just okay. respond to her claims and then I'll get- So she's describing, and I guess the key element always is well, so she has an elaborate set of factors to explain the fact Does she acknowledge that most people don't become addicted to opioids. Is that, does she go there? I never heard her actually say that. I think she does go there, but I... See, people are buying, it's a mix and match thing. Sort of everybody in America thinks all opioids are addictive. And if you take them, you become addicted. And Carl says not. Mm -hmm. And so more or less they splice in well and i thought that's where you were going well these are the factors that make you more susceptible to addiction to painkillers because the most casual observation will tell you well in the exercise that i do if i ask the audience have you ever taken an opioid painkiller everybody raise their hand i say how many became addicted Nobody became addicted right. in that audience. So I th she is trying to grapple with the fact, whether she says it explicitly or not, it's possible that she does, and, and I missed this. I think I would know, have noticed if she said, well, most people don't become addicted to them. And I don't think Rogan even ever brought that up. 
and we're gonna get to Carl. It was just it's too like uh too easy right now to, to turn to Carl Hart and you know Rogan's responses, but 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 she's trying to grapple with the fact that people don't become addicted to drugs or things. So what's going on with that? And she uses dopamine as the explainer of that. Like, well, how well do people biologically um, self-regulate their dopamine? She turns it all into a magical brain act. I mean, it's it. This is like Nora Volkow in, in 2007. So the first question I would say, I don't have a question. I just have a phrase for you. I would say to her, "Deaths of despair," because mm-hmm. sort of. Everybody in America now knows that opioid deaths are unequally distributed. That's sort of become known, but people don't aren't good at segueing that into, you know, the addiction model. Everybody's getting dopamine, but only some people are dying. Taking enough trauma is her response to that, which is why. Which is why trauma, it has to be a biological sort of argument because trauma is her response to, well, deaths of despair. Because, well, all those people, according to her, obviously she hasn't done thought about this in great detail, but all of those people have experienced some adverse events. <clears throat> and so they're much more likely to become addicted and have a dysregulated and that well, And that mediates system. through the brain. Right. And so she calls that a a uh, nurture sort of reason for people becoming addicted but at the end it's all about the brain and if it's all about the brain then that's inherently a biological argument Um, now one of the things that Nora Volko proceeds her lectures with now I mean Nora Volko sounds more complex than this woman because the psychiatrist because Nora Volko acknowledges that most people outgrow addiction and so that's another layer to fit. The most obvious layers to fit in are, well, not everybody becomes addicted. The people who are, are more likely to become addicted are very socially determined. Mm-hmm. And most people outgrow addiction. Although she's not limiting herself to opioids or she is, which she... No, no, she doesn't limit herself. She wrote a book about opioids, that there's an opioid crisis and doctors cause the crisis. We can get to that if you want to, but she is saying that addiction could be to anything. And does she she think that Rogan is addicted to marijuana and alcohol? um, I don't think she is. She's, she talks about the concept of negative consequences and she does believe everything's on balance. So it's like she has patients come to her and say, um, they even talked about video. Actually what they really talked about is uh, Joe's tendency to play video games just you know and kind of um shadowing out his social relationships because of video games and that being unhealthy and she talked she discussed other sort of addictions that are not drug related and even with those she uses dopamine to explain why that happens it's this rush that you get from dopamine and once you've had it enough your brain is saying well i need more of it i need more of it her explainer here which involves drugs too not only does she not say, well, most people outgrow addiction, she says the the whole dopamine thing, the system gone awry, is the reason why it's so hard for people to quit their addictions. When they try to abstain, even months, even years later, they have this thing gnawing on them, telling them to, 
that you need this pleasure reward. So they go back to it. And it's very, 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 very hard for somebody to totally remit or, or stop this process from happening. So, um, you know, I'm aware of the American model of addiction for quite a long time. And it's been basically, you know, drug oriented since for a hundred years. And she's successful because she recasts the standard criminals, all the usual suspects into a new model, the dopamine model, without ever asking a question of um, why do most people not become addicted? Why do most people become addicted, overcome addiction? Does one neurochemical dopamine really explain every type of addiction? But you you don't remember, did she mention any specific? Oh, she mentioned gaming. Because gaming has been recognized by um, uh, the European Psychiatric uh, Manual, the International Classification of Diseases, but not DSM. We're going to get she thinks it's everything. I mean, she social media addiction is something that's very much in the news. We're going to get into it a little bit more. It's very much in the medical news. Um, did she say anything that was new to you? There was nothing new, but except for, I guess I've never really heard someone able to. Um, fit in sort of a universal model of addiction, not that includes non-drug involvements, that includes all of life, that talks about the balancing act of consequences that may be negative or they may be conducive for living your best life. Someone who obviously um, has reasonable conversations with their clients, but still be able to fold that all into this dopaminergic model. And not even, not even dopamine plus whatever other you know, hand wavy brain function she wants to talk about, but it's just dopamine. The last clip I was going to play for you. Well, I'll, uh, let me talk about Carl Hart first. Good. Because as you say, here's, here's what I want to say about Carl. Um, Carl, for people who don't know, I, which I, if you're listening to us, you know him, but he's the Ziff professor of psychology and psychiatry at Columbia University. And he's written two bestsellers, both about the idea that drugs get a bad rap. And so when it comes to the problems that we think that drugs cause, well, it's not really about the drugs at all. And you mentioned previously that Carl is right within the frame in which he's embedded himself. But if you were going to consult him, you would encourage him to put forth a solid addiction conceptualization or else all of the... Um, all of the let's say, outreach that he's doing right now is going to be useless. And I have, <clears throat> I've had mixed responses to that way of thinking. And one is that, well, he's in his lane and he's making great headway in that lane. Someone needs to put forth a solid addiction conceptualization, but maybe it doesn't need to be him. At least he implies enough or is sensible enough that if he heard a good one, he would, you know, he could tack onto it. And if he hears a stupid one that he'll disagree with it. On the other hand, I give you complete credit. As I was watching this, I was thinking about things that you've said about that. Um, because Carl Hart went on Rogan. He went, he had Joe Rogan lapping up everything that he was saying about drugs not being the problem and so forth. And yet months later only, Joe has Anna Lemke on the show convincing 
Rogan that dopamine is the reason for for addictions of all kinds, and it's the result of drugs and and brain changes. So, what's your response? And one to that? thing you and I, one thing you and I know is that Carl's going to reject some brain chemical model for addiction. I mean, if right, sure. If, if somebody said he would just make a face, if somebody says, right. "Oh, dopamine causes addiction," I mean, I can hear him right now. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> It's not fair. <laughs> um, he usually reserves that if somebody personally attacks him. In the video you had, somebody, one of the guys said, are you on drugs right now? And he goes, oh, oh, that's right. That's right. Man. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> Have you ever heard Carl refer to any, I mean, here's the bad news. Um, this psychiatrist is myth-making. And it's the same myth that we've had for a hundred more years, but she's expanded her myth beyond narcotics and drugs. Have you ever heard of Carl refer to anything as being addictive other than alcohol and heroin? No. And that's the thing. He's not interested in that as much. I mean, I maybe have heard him talk about how. Maybe meth. <laughs> well, well, yeah, but drugs in general, but I've, I've heard him expand it, but he's not, he doesn't go the distance with it. So I'll give you that. So her model permits her, forgive me for putting it this way, her model delusional mm -hmm. and non-empirically based as it is, allows her to, she can deploy it in areas that Carl does it. Yes. Carl's mainly interested in saying, well, you know, there's no brain mechanism for addiction. And, you know, he doesn't, as I've said, in his book, he refers to, and, and um, I have to give Andrew Tatarsky's review credit. He, refer, he, he refers to addiction and substance use disorder as the same kernel. It's sort of mm -hmm. like bad things happen. He usually sort of saying, well, a small percentage, 10 to 20% of people have negative outcomes, but he doesn't differentiate among those outcomes. He doesn't right, talk about right. addiction versus, which is another thing that's wrong with this model by this person. Uh, negative outcome, I mean, DSM doesn't use the word addiction. Mm. It doesn't use the word dependence. And it's uh, there's actually a, that's good. DSM has some harm reduction elements in it. DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. Because things don't all pile up in an addiction bottle. If you're looking for, well, how many people are addicted? They can't go without taking heroin for a couple of hours. They go through extreme. There's not that many people like that. Right. People's behaviors kind of all kinds of vary. And why they are now into the concept they use now is opioid use disorder is because it, 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 what they're saying is, well, it's sort of the amount of bad things that happened to you piled right. up. Right. Here's a bunch of them. And if enough bad things happen, we call it severe, a severe disorder, then a moderate disorder and a mild disorder. And that actually you know, although we talk about addiction, I certainly talk about addiction as the end point. Um, I wonder about our client base. Does everybody who comes in, are they really addicted? 
we have the life process program and you know most of our clients aren't addicted type people and we have a concept of addiction but that's sort of like at one end of things and we're talking about well what kinds of bad things are happening how come you keep doing the same thing even has negative consequences how often do you do it but we're we're just not tied down to like people being addicted because you might say well our clients aren't that likely to be addicted and really in the universe not that many people are that likely to be addicted the people that you you know that everybody sees on television or imagines um they and there's and i'm more television programs have gotten somewhat subtler they'll imply mm -hmm. that somebody has a drug problem but they don't show them there's a famous film called the man with the golden arm where you know the guy climbs the wall frank's yeah, not yeah, yeah. climbs the wall through which wall they don't show that so much anymore and i how can I put this? People who are making television programs are more realistic than the people that um, uh, Rogan has on his television on his show. So they're, you mentioned this last week. I think that Rogan might know that. <clears throat> no, exactly. I mean, it, it, in some ways, I watch him and I'm like, "Wow, this this meathead's a real thinker. He's really actually thinking about this." But he can't seem to keep. He can't keep, seem to keep the string of ideas that he gets from guests into one logical sequence in his mind. It just jumps from one to the other. But in this case, uh, I think anyone could have made them. If if you're naive about what addiction is like Rogan is, and he heard Carl Hart talking about drugs not being the problem, I could see him thinking, okay, maybe drugs aren't the problem and this woman's right. <clears throat> you know, uh, there's I ways. A quick rundown on how that would work. Well, I don't, I, it just happens to work. I mean, it just happens to be the case. I mean, that, what I'm saying to you is that people buy on to Carl's argument and they still are wedded to the disease model. Yeah. And so I, I, I don't know how it, I don't know how you factually, I don't know how you resolve that dialectic in some way, but you, you people about do. That, that, uh, people who are criticized, I mean, um, I don't know. It's hard to judge who's more popular or famous um, but Johan Hari's famous and he goes out and attacks the disease theory and then, you know, people go home and believe the same old thing. Um, my approach to that is to confront people directly with the contradiction. I, mm -hmm. I'm famous for that. Like in the, where I ask people, um, have you taken an opioid painkiller? Did you become addicted? Why not? And then I'll take it a second level, which I, I got to give credit. I got it from Jacob Solom. Did you feel kind of impelled to take some more of it? Like, did you say, huh, that worked for me? And people will say that. Then I'll say, did you? And they'll say, oh, no. And then when you say, well, why didn't you? And they'll just say, well, I have children or I have a job and I have to get up and drive them in the morning. So I'll be... You know, you would say to that psychiatrist, uh, are people who are, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of data that show mm. that people are more likely to overcome a dependence if they're married, if they have a job, if they have, if they have things weighing the other side of the scale down, which is so commonsensical and logical. And, you know, you would say, I you could ask the woman questions are people who are employed 
just as likely to become addicted and, and just as unlikely to overcome the addiction as people who don't mm -hmm. have any kind of job or any kind of skills training. And of course, we have the Life Process Program, which works on the exact opposite model, you know, which, which is data-laden. It depends what you consider science to be. These people yeah. have these schematic views of the brain, which mm -hmm. mean nothing. And, you know, we say, well, when you look at epidemiological research, you can get a very strong predictive model. The person who most does this is Gene Heyman of who will become addicted and who will be slowest to overcome addiction based on these predictive variables, education, marriage, um, being tied down in, into a community. And then, you know, sometimes hey, Kate, uh, Gene Heyman gets almost poetic. He almost slips into sounding like me, you'll say, what it sort of gets down to is people saying, I'm, they, I'm quitting because it's too much of a burden to my psyche and my family and I'm too embarrassed. That's what his bottom line, after all those data. So let me tell you the difference between, not that you don't know, but let me uh, expound and illuminate the difference between you, you and Anna Lemke. You follow a model, a theoretical model that's just reality-based. And so your clinical work matches that. She does the opposite. She has clients. And the way that she explained talking to her clients, let's take the negative consequences bit. Joe was saying, well, so what's the difference between, you know, you play golf all the time. What, what is that addiction? She said, well, the negative consequences. And he said, well, what, well, like what? And she said, well, maybe you're, Maybe someone plays golf all the time, but their wife is saying, you know, golly, you're out, you're out too much. And he said, well, maybe they, he needs, they need to get a new wife. And she said, well, that's, you know, something that gets brought up. People come into me and they ask, just how much is this a problem? Like, how much should I be changing my life? Yeah, am I too involved? And she says to them practically, that's a great question. And I can't answer that for you, but maybe we can kind of tackle that together. What, you know, which thing do you prefer? Which benefits does it give you? Um, do you think that you could do one more? She asked all the basic practical questions. So when she's, when she's talking about how she deals with human beings, it's virtually identical to the way that we approach human beings, at least in and, the way and she it says it. But that way, the thing that makes it clear that the brain models, <clears throat> it's not only bullshit, but it, um, well, hold on. I have, I, let me, I have the second part of that is that she, at the same time, that she's able to do to talk about human beings that way, a mono a mono kind of a thing. She made this claim, and I'll let you. Um, this is the next clip I was gonna play, but it's not working. She, they were talking about athletes, and uh -huh. Joe was saying, "All right, so there's some superior athletes. They train. Their whole life is training. Their whole life is achievement. Their whole life is. Uh, you know, they they track their nutrients down to the last calorie every day." They're at their best. What do you say to that? And people, she said, yeah, people reward them for that. And you might say they could be feel more or less successful. But at the end of the day, you know, their careers are over. I have a hunch that a lot of them, that dopamine, when that dopamine wears off, then they're, they're, they're starting to come down on the other end. She can't for some reason. I don't think she would say that to a client. I don't, but she's, as soon as it stops being a uh, person to person kind of a thing and it's theoretical again, 
she leans so heavily on dopamine. It's not like she couldn't talk about it like, well, an athlete will have to find other involvements in their lives to make them happy. It's, well, the ones that dope, this is scary because once the dopamine wears off, they'll be on a come down and that's bad. So she can't match the two. And that, I think that relates to the thing that you wanted to bring up next. You were in the middle of saying. And what we call reductionism is a matter of translating common sense into reputed biological mechanisms and they never quite work as well mm. as common sense that's right because obviously you know you look at some athletes retire and they get into sports casting because right. they have a skill set like they're good talkers or they're personable or i don't know one of my heroes is jerry west Jerry West was abused as he was, you know, six foot one white guy who was one of the greatest basketball players of all time. His he was abused as a child. He played basketball all the time. He sort of couldn't talk to anybody, and he had a famous tweety-like voice, and everybody made fun of him. But then he became general manager of the Lakers, and now then he became consultant for the Golden State Warriors when they became champions, he expanded his natural gifts into areas where he was not only traumatized, but he was famous for being bad at them. Mm. He just wasn't a good talker. And I know, I know what we talked about this before, when you have a child that you're working with and they get involved in an activity Sometimes that activity will be very similar to the thing they end up doing for a career. But other times, it's just um, they're learning meta skills. They're not going to become like a great soccer, right. professional soccer player or, or gymnast. But they're learning what it means to be successful and to persist in an activity. And, of course, obviously there's a ton of athletes who are like that. I mean, I, I mean, especially considering a lot of professional athletes come from down under backgrounds like Jerry West, and then they become highly successful. You have to say, well, they, I don't think Jerry West would be a famous millionaire living in the Hollywood Hills if he wasn't a great basketball player. And then that was an avenue towards him developing and, practicing his skills in other areas. I mean, it's another example of where by trying, the common sense explanation is, if for most people who have success in the arts and in sports and in specialized areas, that generally is a bridge to a more successful life, not to a less, they don't mm. have, not more of them. Jerry West is from Appalachia. Right. I, a lot more, a ton more of his friends who weren't all American or pro baseball players are dead than Jerry West isn't dead. So let's, let's, we're on a theme here and I get, can, can, uh, let me, let, I'm so sorry. Let me say, let me say one ahead. more thing. Cause you mentioned the way I, I work with kids. I, something I've asked teachers before and it's it profound the way that they sort of snap out of a, cloud when I say this I've, I've been asked you know what should I do with this student and I sometimes ask 
what would you do if it were your kid? And they think about it in a different way. And for Anna Lemke that's to funny, say- That's a funny <clears> story <throat> already. If they switch to, oh, I don't have my professional hat on, let's think about a kid I care about. Right. They go in a different- Exactly. Mode. Yeah, right. So what if the, it is almost like, this is your student, you're supposed to care about them. And I'm sort of saying, what if this was someone you cared about, what would you do? Oh, I would. And I think, you know, the <laughs> idea of, you shouldn't become an elite athlete because, well, because you, there could be a come down. Um, you wouldn't, I don't think Anna Lemke would say it to a family member. And I don't even think she would say it to a client. So, it, you know, she, she really can't reconcile those two things. But anyway, like that was a digression. Knows that they want to encourage their kid to have high self-esteem, to make healthy choices. Every, every middle-class adult and even Everybody knows you want your child to get involved in positive activities. Uh-huh. Everybody knows the same, the basic parenting activities. They have maybe have more or less skills or opportunities to make that happen. It's almost like uh, the way you're putting it is, oh, I've got my uh, miner's hat with that light on it now, and I'm dealing with a kid who's got a diagnosis. So I have to throw out everything I actually know in my actual life that I try to practice. All right, so I've been, uh, I've been stalling you on no, you no, to discuss no, no, an article no. in the uh, you, uh, What you bring up is uh, dealing with real people. You're in the, f- you deal with reductionism every day or certain, you mm-hmm. know, regularly, let's put it that way, where you have to sort of switch people to like thinking about I, will, I was going to say Nora Volko did a big series on HBO called Addiction and she went through all that forgive me I know this is impolitic of me bullshit and the thing on treatment was motivational interview which is what you said Lemke does forget all oh, that that's so great, the brain scans. And look, that part of the brain lights up. It's so fabulous. Now what? And it's been 50 years and they have nothing to do about that. They don't go in with, you know, as well, Sally Sattel's good at this. They don't go in with, you know, some kind of probe and fix that part of your, there's things they can fix in your heart that way. But they don't have things they can fix in your brain and uh, oh, you're right. not addictive. So, um, I um, got a mailing called Dopamine and Reward, the story of social media. You know, you just know how this one's going to go, don't you? (laughs) The addictive nature of social, this is in Medscape. The addictive nature of social media has previously been called out as analogous to the addictive nature of gambling. That's a funny way of putting it. How, what would I object to that sentence? It's analogous <laughs> to gam nature of gambling. Aren't we talking about addiction? And if right. she believes that addiction, social media are addictive, why is she talking about analogy? Oh, it's analogous. And what's it analogous to? It's not even analogous 
to heroin addiction. It's almost like she's going wink, wink. Well, we know this isn't really addictive, but sometimes people talk about, well, gambling is gambling's in DSM-5. So maybe she's figuring, well, although her problem is DSM-5 specifically ruled out gaming addiction. Let's think about it. Whether you're on Instagram, TikTok, or a similar platform, you can't help but scroll from one video to the next. It's one five to 10 second video after the next. And before you know it, you've spent the past hour going through random videos, but you can't stop. It's a phenomenological experiential description. You say, well, this is what people do. But right, now right. she has a paragraph to leap into Lemke land and Volko land. Social media actually, and then she puts it in quotations. Once again, they claim they believe these things, but rewires, and she has quotation marks around it. That's to say, well, let's not get crazy and think this is actually true. Our brains such that we expect instant gratification. In other words, when we get a notification message like or share, we expect fast and short-term pleasure reward because the brain will produce a hit of dopamine. Quotation marks again. They don't believe their own bullshit. However, it's what would be the what would they be quoting? I, I it's you can't you can't just you say that it's real. Yeah, you just you have to put quotes around it to save your ass. Yeah. However, it is important to note that the reward system is not delimited to the dopaminergic pathway. She's actually better than Lemke. I was just about to say that. At least she doesn't limit it to dopamine. And in fact, should be understood as a complex network system, e.g. governed by changes in brain morphology through addiction and excessive behavior. Huh. Given the quick pace of the social media world, the reward pathways in our brains change, and there's an increasing demand for attention, perpetuating an addictive mindset. Well, now she's back to screw all that brain stuff, which she knows nothing about. You know, well, she's mentioned dopamine and brain morphology in two, two words. And now she's back to talking about real people. Mm -hmm. As the platform for communications, well, when we refresh our page, we expect instant gratification. We got that before. But what happens when we don't get a like or a message or some sort of reward? So you can envision that. You're a person, you put yourself out in the limb. You're not super popular. Maybe people put you down. What's that like? Before we knew about dopamine, we could all understand that experience. You know what I mean? Not being that liked. They, people knew about this in the 1950s and in the 1850s. But what happens when we don't get a like? Recounts of social media use by adolescents have likened online attention to popularity. I'd say so. I, I wouldn't say that was such a giant leap. Accordingly, a lack of constant attention on social media has created a vicious cycle of anxiety, loneliness, and depression due to a failure to receive virtual reward. Oh, she has virtual in quotes. She just said it's like popularity just through the media, she has a difficulty. She keeps claiming that things are the same, 
but she doesn't believe it, so she has to put everything in quotes. Taking together social media may be harmful by distorting our self-image, and while social media platforms help connect us, they can also ironically make us feel isolated, lower our self-confidence, and diminish our overall sense of well-being. So she's describing an experience that people knew about, as I said, before they ever heard of dopamine, where, you know, you try to be popular, maybe make an effort, you don't feel good about the feedback, maybe it isn't good feedback, maybe you're insecure, and then you feel more stressed and depressed as a result of that, and you make a greater effort and outreach to cry and gain that, gain that approval. And if you're after one, say, partner and you do that, you can see that addictive love cycle where you're yearning for a person and you're really uncertain and feeling bad about how they react to you. And, you know, you go into a deeper depression and then you yearn for them more. So, Ironically, doesn't that sound like what it could be like to be a journalist who puts everything in quotes? I mean, could uh, you imagine you're, you're trying to sell something about yourself and you could do that as a person who's stable, balanced, feels good about their lives and you put everything out there. People could review it negatively or positively. Um, and you could, you could let the negatives bounce off of you or you could be a person who wraps up your self-esteem in your journalism and if it gets a negative review you're i mean well you know i wrote a memoir it's in the back of you i've gotten a lot of negative feedback in my life and i you know i get a lot of negative feedback now i'm far from revered um and nobody endures that with total equanimity but i endure it better than average you know i have a certain People would say, oh, Nick Heather once said about me, oh, you have a really thick skin. Oh, you make jokes about everything. But, you know, one, I mean, and people sort of know this when they have children. You know, they know to say to the child, well, those people didn't like you. They don't know what a good person is. Everybody knows that you have to reinforce the internal module of a young person because everybody gets negative feedback, that, that's for sure. And you want your child to be able to overcome that. And of course, the big thing now about Instagram is teen, young teen girls are especially susceptible to wanting to be approved of and to wanting to be found attractive. And so, you know, I was watching on MSNBC and they were interviewing, they were doing a show on that. And one of the women said, I wish somebody would tell them that, you know, not everybody's, you know, going to be attractive in the same way. And what I thought was, they've heard that message 5 million times, but somehow mm. that's a hard message to take in when you're young and when you're maybe a teenage girl. So what's the answer then? How do you prevent a person from going overboard because, you know, they're not close to being the most popular kid on the internet or in their class. How do you prevent them from dipping down into depression and anxiety? Well, should, should we leave on the table complete abstinence from uh, social media forever? She actually, 
That's an interesting question. As the platforms for communication information have revolved so rapidly over the past decade, there is a need to establish boundaries between what is beneficial and what is detrimental to your potentially detrimental. Every once in a while, she breaks out in just a bold, there's no quotation marks in that sentence. She just says something that's true. You, you're not going to be able to function. You, you can't even do your homework now, obviously, if you don't know how to use social media and internet. Right. That's not going to make you a happy person. Oh, I told my son or daughter, and of course, it's parallel to drugs and alcohol, which I mentioned bringing up with Skenazi. Well, just never use any of them. Of course, that's different than limiting it, obviously. But I mean, I, I, how do you prevent a young girl or any teenage girl or anybody from going over the cliff by getting sucked into Instagram with its natural trials and potential depression causing blowback? Yeah, by, by nurturing and supporting an otherwise fulfilled life, which is what I was saying. I don't know if you caught it, but what I'm saying is in, a, in sort of a meta point is that the, all these experiences that she, potentials that she's describing, I imagine she faces those same potentials as in her career as a writer here. And so how does she deal with it? You know, or I, I don't know if it's a she, the person writing. I thought it, your answer caught everything in one sentence by developing an, a fulfilling life. The reason your daughter's not going to sit in her room chugging all night on social feedback or whatever is because she can sit down and do something positive and entertain herself and enjoy it. Right. It's so, the problem with addiction theories is so simple and stupid, I guess, that anybody doesn't want to talk about it. <laughs> I mean, the thing that makes you most gratified about a child it was then they get involved in a positive activity they like it they're good at it and they get positive feedback from it that's so obvious that if there are still problems despite us all knowing that well there must be something more complicated it couldn't be that we could do a better job you know of doing what we know is right it has to be that everything's more complex than we think and the problem is that job is simple but hard yes and sometimes it goes wrong. Sometimes, you know, you right. can't think. And so we want some kind of a crazy ass shortcut. Like you could just like, tink, you know, if you brought a couple of ratchet pliers, uh, mm. wrenches, you could screw the people's brains around, right? And everything will be great. And, you know, like a beautiful boy, he goes through hell. And then he ends up being a writer, a good writer, because he has those skills and he writes books and he gives lectures. It's called life. And he's got a girlfriend and a dog. Okay. You know, and he's, to judge from when I see Nick Sheff talk about his uh, uh, life or his son, David Sheff talks about his son. It doesn't take too much to make for a satisfied human being. It's just that sometimes those not too much things 
seem hard to acquire and very elusive and out of your grasp. So Maya Solovitz said to me, and I get down on you sometimes for being too hard on people, but I'll be hard on Maya here. She's, I mentioned all of those things to her. She said, well, yeah, but you can't prescribe that. And my answer to her was, yeah, well, I try to, you know, because what, what else? Right. And Maya is a perfect example of it. She was a brilliant, but disgruntled and dissatisfied young person. Now she's married and people call, know she's got a lot to offer. And so she was a socially awkward person that took a while to, same as Mark Lewis and others. Carl Hart's funny. His, he's different from them because he was kind of always socially attractive and appealing. He was a good athlete and he was a kind of a disc jockey. So he didn't have that thing of where he was like crushed, even though, you know, compared to Maya, his background was a thousand times more traumatic, Mm. but he had a stronger core. And so he had to come around the block to get to the point of saying, well, you know, I took some drugs and a lot of people near me took drugs and their lives went completely downhill, but that didn't happen to me. And he had to work his way through that logic, through that pattern. And so, you know, the answers aren't hard, the answers aren't hard, but performing them is hard and performing them on a large scale is very hard because we're not talking about, you know, in general people, addiction theory people, their children are better off. I mean, a thing that happens to me a ton is I'm on some kind of a, well, not as much anymore. I would be on a workshop and I'll be with three recovering people. And I always say, do the same trick. And it, it always works. I say, how do you, what are your children like? And they say, oh, thank God. You know, my kid's a moderate drinker. He's got a girlfriend or she's married. And I say, I wonder how that happened. Because usually the person you're talking to is traumatized or had an addicted parent themselves. And then I say, well, you know, you're up here, forgive me, spewing this bullshit, and yet you've actually performed kind of a miracle. You have an addictive legacy that you fell prey to, but now your kids are just like normal, formal. Sort How of another, another version of well, what would you do if it were your kid? You, you'd turn it back and say, what are your kids like? And what? And how did you do it? Right. And it's like it's like you know, climbing the moon for them to sort of say, and and I do this. You know, I go. Let me guess. I'll I'll tell you how you did it. You realize that you had to create a stable home. You had a good job. By the time you know, you're now some kind of recovery coach. Um, you knew to praise your children. You knew to avoid you know over conflict. You knew to reward them in areas that gave them strong suits. You know, you knew that they had to pursue something that was going to be productive. In other words, you were normal, you know, I don't want to give you a swelled head, but you were a normal parent, pretty good parent. And you, you know, being in recovery got you to that point. And that's what it's really all about. So we've come back to children again. We've got a children's specialty. We've gone through... um, Rogan again, 
and we wondered about how one man can love Carl Hart and what's the and what's the woman's name? Anna Lemke. I think I'm saying it right. I, I might be mispronouncing. And how come the world of the believing? I'm going to die before, and they'll still be doing the most advanced thinking people still be doing dopamine podcast. They're, he's a little behind the eight ball on that one. They're, it's not quite as big as it used to be. Mm-hmm. When she was interviewed in 2007, or maybe it's 2005, just after she had been appointed, the headline was, a general in the drug war, it's all about the dopamine. Nora Volkan must say it 20 times a day. She doesn't say it's all about the dopamine 20 times a day anymore. Right. So, um, we're, um, you know, we're uh, swimming upstream, but isn't that what this program is about? And my memoir is about, you have to persist despite a little negative feedback. If you're going to accomplish something in life, you and I, me more, but both of us maybe get more negative feedback than average. So, and and the, the good news, the good news is that the normal life basic elements that the parents, the people think about their loved ones, that you know um, what it means to live a good life. Those are the the addiction antidote. And of course, the bad news is that. People try with those things and sometimes come up short. The good news is that there's nothing really bogging anybody down from trying again or continuing to pursue their best lives. And the other good news is that we don't have to terrify ourselves about that concept more than it's already terrifying. So the idea that the the short way out of it is, well, let's worry everybody about, you know, neurochemistry. That way no one will ever try a drug. We don't have to... You don't have to get into that realm. And no one has to be and so I terrified. You almost, when you pre-interviewed um, um, Lenora, I thought she said, oh, I'm what worried about drugs. You know, probably because she's just reading a newspaper and watching television. Yeah. And um, yeah. ironically to me, you have to give her the message, well, just follow your own philosophy. Right. Give your kid independence and they'll learn skills and they'll learn to rely on themselves. And that's the antidote to that vague thing you're worried about, which hasn't happened and it's not going to really happen. Now, Rogan has 10 billion uh, listeners. We're working our way up. (laughs) Well, in the meantime, stay off social media because you'd never know what's going to happen in this social media yeah whatever we're doing i, I mean i don't think you can even not be on social and media and i'm reading my life i'm doing <laughs> injecting yeah. in both your arms right bye bye zach see you later stanton <laughs>